When it comes to snowmen, most of us are familiar with the likes of Frosty and Olaf from the Disney film Frozen. But snowmen have a history that extends well beyond the creation of these animated figures. Hi, I'm George Borarki, and this is Cityscape. Bob Eckstein is an award-winning illustrator, writer, New Yorker cartoonist, the author of the New York Times best-selling Footnotes from the World's Greatest Bookstores, and he's a snowman expert. In his book, The Illustrated History of the Snowman, Eckstein reveals the ancient origins of the snowman and its contemporary evolution. Bob is a repeat guest on Cityscape. He joins me now in the studio. Bob, thanks so much for coming in. Hi, George. Great to be back. So there's so much to talk about. But it is winter, so I want to start off talking about the snowman. First of all, what sparked your interest in snow shaped to resemble humans? Well, you know, I come from an art background. I also love history and love mystery. And I was um, looking for a project years ago of a great mystery, but I wanted to be positive. I didn't want it to be like a negative crime mystery, but something that was like one of life's big questions. And I stumbled upon who made the first snowman. And it's very fortunate I did because I uncovered all these amazing stories. And I found out there was all this great history that hadn't been shared before. So who did make the first snowman? I don't have an exact name and place, like a cave from 25,000 B.C. or something. But I did locate the earliest documentation of snowman making, which is really exciting. Um, I have an illustration that dates back to 1380 in the margins of an illuminated manuscript. And um, you see it in the margins next to a solemn passage of the crucifixion of Christ. And it's an amazing story of why it's found there. But that is the earliest documentation of of a specific snowman. I do have some leads going back to 7th century northern China in which religious writings allow people to to create a Buddha out of snow. Huh. The only thing is I don't have a specific case, an exact snowman. And unfortunately, I don't have a prehistoric snowman to go back to. And any piece of coal could be just a piece of coal, or maybe it was an eyeball for a snowman. Why do you think it is people started to build snowmen way, way, way back? You know, that's one of the things I really try to tackle in my new book, and that is I collected a bunch of experts on this. I, I got the leading archaeologist to help me come up with a theory of if did man make snowmen in prehistoric times and why. And there's two primal instincts that we found that man has always done, which is one, depict himself in some image, whether it's by wood or on a cave painting or fur or, or anything. And by the way, the reason why... People think that cavemen only make cave paintings. It's because that's the most preserved artwork. It's deep in the cave, and it, it's the things that made us snow and mud that are long gone. Yeah, they melt. <laughs> right. But, but, but the artwork that we see now is only the tip of the ice, iceberg. Man made artwork. Man was playful in the beginning. And so snowman making is something that we think it, the snowman, excuse me, that the prehistoric man made. Um, another evidence of that is that some of the earliest sculpture uses what they call the snowman technique, which is putting balls of clay on top of each other, which is the second primal instinct that man has always had, which is always wanting to put one thing on top of another thing. And so we really believe that prehistoric man did make snowmen. Um, 
There's no reason not to believe that. Man has always wanted to make a life-size picture of himself. So when you decide to delve into the history of the snowman, how do you know where to begin? Where do you start? Where did you start? Well, first I started off as an amateur and going to flea markets thinking I was going to find clues there or something. At a flea market? Yeah, I was looking at catch stuff and I was looking at all the old antiques and stuff, unaware that the history goes way back. It wasn't until I started collecting, instead of little items and pieces of tchotchkes at the flea market, instead I started collecting experts. I started collecting professors in art history and uh, historians in, in, in cultural history. And together I had a dream team that pieced together going back to the history and started sharing stories that make up the whole history of the snowman. And this goes back to things like the miracle of 1511, the massacre of 1690, and these stories that really existed, these benchmarks in history in which the snowman happened to be there. And so that that's where the story kind of kept it going back and getting more lush and dense. And then I found that the snowman actually was important, that in the Middle Ages, making a snowman was actually a very popular activity and was a phenomenon. It, it was something that people loved doing. It was a common activity for couples to stroll in the early evenings through a town, let's say in Brussels, and to look and see what was made at the different street corners. And the, and the street corners would be filled with these snow scenes that depicted, uh, whether it's political commentary or different scenes from, from folk um, like mythical figures and things like that. People really got into it. And that it wasn't child's play. This was done by adults and even by famous artists like Michelangelo. You referenced the miracle of 1511. What was the miracle of 1511? It was their Woodstock. It was their chance to express themselves. They are? They being the Belgians. Um, in Brussels in 1511, there was a snowstorm that lasted uh, days and days. And the way the town sort of dealt with this was to go out and make snowmen at, at a time where entertainment was pretty limited. This is uh, for people that really had reading glasses and books before Netflix. And what people did was they had a chance to express themselves because the snow that came down was like free art supplies dropped on their front doorstep. And this was an opportunity for people to express themselves publicly and it included sexually graphic scenes and uh, this was like an early form of pornography in a way with these snow scenes depicting all these things. And also people were acting out against things that they didn't understand or things that were annoyed about with the church or the government, the local government. So you had this op-eds going on made out of snow. And um, this is a documented event that, that um, we don't have any real snow pictures left. But what we do have is journals and diaries and we have documentation from, from more than one source that such a thing did happen, and it was a big event. You also referenced one of the bloodiest events in early American history, the Schenectady Massacre of 1690. How were snowmen represented there? Yeah, this is a really weird story, too, that I just stumbled across until um, I got into really getting into the history of American history. I learned that at Fort Schenectady, there was this blizzard that had frozen open the, the front gates and they had stationed two guards to to watch over the front of the fort. And um, as the blizzard continued, these two uh, nitwits decided that they were going to go inside the fort and have a drink. And in their place, they left behind two snowmen. 
And sure enough, marching down for three days from Montreal was uh, French Indians and soldiers who were coming to attack the fort and um, wind up massacring, massacring over 60 people, over 60 villages, including children and women. It was just a tragic thing. And unfortunately, the snowman actually had a tie to it. You have referred to the snowman as the frozen forest gump. Why do you refer to the snowman like that? There's so many times that he's like sort of there at the op-ed opportunity of of an event or something that's a, an advancement in technology or science. It was the snowman that appears in some of the earliest silent movies. It was a snowman that appears in some of the earliest photographs from dating back to 1840. Uh, one of the pioneers in photography, uh, Mary Dillwyn, she was creating a dozen photographs for her um, sickly niece as a gift. And it included a couple of pictures of a snowman. And this is some of the earliest photographs that exist. There are some photographs that exist before this that were simply silhouettes or silver plate sort of things. But this um, this collection is the first time really that a photographer captures fleeting moments, um, people smiling or people doing some activity like making a snowman. So again, the snowman found itself sort of right there in the center. Um, and the same is true for the advent of magazines and postcards and greeting cards and advertisements and magazines. It seems like the snowman sort of was lucky and was always there like a frozen forest gump and taking advantage of that. Did any famous artists ever sculpt a snowman? Michelangelo, for instance. He did one, but another one is uh, Larkin Mead made the Snow Angel of 1859, which at the time was a world-famous sculpture. He, as a teenager overnight, made this sculpture outside his place of work during the night on New Year's Eve. And it's this beautiful recording angel, which is sort of the angel that records I think the the people who passed away the year before and their good deeds and, and things like that. And uh, by the morning, the town woke it up to this beautiful masterpiece. And shortly afterwards, it got in the news. It was covered in the New York Tribune, I believe, and the Springfield News. People traveled hours to come and see the sculpture. And he would go on to actually make the Lincoln Memorial and become one of America's most important sculptors. Huh. Wow. How, if at all, do snowmen differ from culture to culture? Well, it is one of the universal things because people can recognize it and people know snowmen around the world. I would say it's one of the most recognizable icons, second to religious icons. But there is a little bit of a difference. In Japan, two balls are used to make a snowman. Um, and that is because their lucky charm is a dharma that's made of two balls, and so they follow that with the snowman as well, making just two balls, which is sort of a sort of a replica of a Buddha. And another thing they do differently over there is they often carve out a cavity in the stomach of the snowman and put a lit candle. And the pictures are beautiful. I have pictures in my uh, book of some of these snowmen, and they're really spectacular. So those are two balls. Traditionally, it's three balls, right? I think three balls is what we all see now. It sort of started in the 1920s. I call those the Dean Martin years and the uh, W.C. Field uh, years, which is that the snowman kept on being depicted in cards and in, in different media as being a drunk and womanizing. 
And that's why I called the Dean Warren years. And what we see there is that the snowman was often wearing either a top hat and wearing the scarf. And we see that he's always being made with a carrot as a nose. So sort of things and styles and trends are developing back then. And this was all cemented, unfortunately, by Frosty the Snowman. And I say unfortunately because I feel like snowman making should be this creative endeavor where you could just do anything with a snowman. And a lot of artists do. But I do hate when people sort of copy what was already done. And mm-hmm. that kind of defeats the purpose that snowman making is one of the one of the few times an adult is going to make a life-size figure and make it so public that they're going to make it in their front yard. So it's a great chance for someone to just do and express themselves in any way they wish. What is the most creative snowman you've ever seen, would you say? Well, that's tough because I've seen thousands and thousands of snowmen. And um, the contemporary artists have been doing a wonderful job doing installations. There was one artist... um, David Humphrey, who made a warehouse just filled of enormous blow-up snowmen. And that's certainly something to remember. Um, there is the world's largest snowman, which is 13 stories high. That was made in Bethel, Maine. Wow. And that was done a few years ago. Um, the town people are a little worried now because rumors are that the Japanese are or gearing to break that record. Uh-oh. Yeah. <laughs> and they're not thinking, well, we're going to have to make a bigger one. Uh, so those are memorable snowmen, snowmen that require working permit and, and teamsters and cranes to make. Not that the largest snowman is the most, uh, you know, has to be the most amazing one. The largest snowman I know now is the one they just found in space. In space? The There's the snowman they found in, <laughs> that was, um, it was four billion miles away. Huh? Yeah, I can't remember the name, but the... Not that I'm surprised, though. You're not surprised by that at all? No, that's what I expected them to find. <laughs> so the snowman has been put to work over the years as a pitchman, right? Selling it's, products, exactly. including alcohol. Exactly. And cigarettes. Cigarettes, too. Flour, anything that's like white, powdery stuff. It was even popular as a T-shirt about 10 years ago for um, cocaine. Really? Yeah, on the streets, people were selling these T-shirts. It was a code for cocaine. Hmm. Luckily, that unfortunate stage has passed, and we don't see that anymore. But you're right. The snowman has been used as a pitchman in the 11th hour when they can't think of anything else because people do relate with that image as being an everyday thing. People can relate with it as being them. Frosty, of course, has a jolly, happy soul. But the snowman has had a dark side over the years. You mentioned the drunken snowman, but even darker than that. Right. The... um, the very first snowman I referred to earlier from 1380 is actually an anti-Semitic image. And this story is a little bit complicated, but uh, somehow this image spectacularly insults two religions at the same time. And this is because at that time there was a very sort of a vulgar sort of sense of humor that was, that was used, a grotesque humor that was used when things were, were too hard to understand, when people couldn't wrap their hands around things, such as the crucifixion of Christ. And you'd see the most inappropriate uh, sort of gestures and, and images during these themes. And, and this included this anti-Semitic snowman. Hollywood took the snowman and made the snowman evil. It wasn't frosty. Killer snowman on the big screen. Right, yeah, going now speeding up all the way up to our time. In the 1980s and 90s, there was all these slasher movies which had killer snowmen called Jack Frost and stuff. 
The, the snowman has, has has had a terrible history in the movies. Um, Roger Ebert has called his his least favorite movie ever is Jack Frost starring um, Michael Keaton. It was a turkey of a movie. And then all these slasher movies and stuff, where having a snowman as a killer psychopath seems a little bit... That Michael Keaton movie, he was a dad who died who came back as a snowman, right? Yeah, you can see right now the elevator pitch has problems. I mean, like <laughs> you, it's it's amazing that this got green-lighted because some of the plot stories on the, on the movie just seem so unreasonable. Was Frosty the first introduction to the American public as this popular culture snowman? Well, no. My argument in the book is that snowman making and snowmen were way more popular back in the Middle Ages and, and no. But in terms ago. of popular culture and this little animated creature that we see, <laughs> well, I consider that pop culture going back then. Oh, you do. I okay. do. But but uh, you, you're saying right now with TV and stuff, it is Frosty the Snowman has unfortunately dominated what we consider the typical snowman. That was in 1969. It was inspired by a little movie short from 1954 that everyone looked forward to each holiday season. It was like a four-minute long black-and-white film people would see during Christmas before it was expanded to the half-an-hour special we know now. And before that, it was inspired, actually, by a children's book. Until that point, had snowmen not necessarily been associated with Christmas, and that was the first time that it was associated with Christmas specifically? No, no, I would say the beginning of that would be Gene Autry's hit, Frosty the Snowman. The song actually came before the the short. I should have added that that before the 1954 uh, little short was Gene Autry's song, which was on the radio everywhere. And it was covered by a zillion musicians since, from Jimmy Durante to to uh, Nat King Cole, to everyone. Everyone has sung uh, Frosty the Snowman, even Marilyn Manson. Really? Yeah. (laughs) Never heard that version. Here's a question for you. Who do you prefer, Frosty or Olaf from the Disney movie Frozen? You're killing me here. (laughs) To me, like all the snowmen that happened before both of them are so more more fascinating. Um, I I have to tell you, I'm, I'm not really big with the Frozen um, I get this question everywhere I go. I'm Every sure. book event, people <laughs> want to know what I think of it. I don't think much of it. It doesn't have really a fascinating history behind it, nor sort of have a, a, a special dynamic with the society. So to me, it's sort of just a, like a kid's thing. And, and that's where I kind of um, divide up the snowmen. Is, is the snowmen for kids are fine. And it's playful, like Frosty the Snowman. But to me... The snowman making could be so much more when people see it that way. It it could be, you could consider it one of man's earliest forms of folk art. And for that reason, I feel like I want to hold on to that significance. I I want to make sure people understand that there is something more, there's more meat to the bone here with the snowman. The snowman is the subject of festive rituals around the world, including one in Switzerland where the snowman is blown up. This is good. Um, each year they, they schlep this, um, this snowman through the town in this parade. Uh, the town people throw sausages and, and gifts to people on floats. And this snowman's eventually brought to this large pile of very flammable wood and different things in the middle of the town square where they light it up. And based on how long it takes for, this, for the snowman to explode from the dynamite that's stuffed up in him, that determines how much, how many more days are left 
for winter. So much better than the groundhog. Yeah, this is, <laughs> this is great. And then as the fire's going, people go closer to this bonfire, and they take the sausages on sticks and they grill them. How great. What other rituals have you discovered related to the snowman? Any others? Um, it's hard to top blowing up snowmen. Yes. Um, I, the big thing is in Japan, there's the snowman festivals in which the amount of snowmen actually outnumber the population in the towns. Huh. It's a spectacular sight to go and see all these just little snowmen all over the place. And uh, that's a ritual they do each year. And in China, there are snowman festivals as well, where it's not so much a, um, the quantity as, as the quality. They have these beautiful ice sculptures, and they also make these enormous snowmen that are also stories high. I want to shift gears now from the snowman to the bookstore. Your book, Footnotes from the World's Greatest Bookstores, celebrates independent bookshops around the globe. Why was it important for you to do that project? In the beginning, I didn't realize the importance. It was a project that um, the New Yorker gave me, uh, the New Yorker magazines, where I was doing cartoons and writing some stories. And I did this little piece on endangered bookstores in New York City, which I thought was important. Um, but I didn't realize the significance of what was happening across the whole country. And that is independent bookstores were struggling. Shortly after I did the New Yorker piece, I was approached by a publisher, uh, Penguin Random House, to do a book. And I took on this book project and shortly found out how, how much this meant to a lot of people. And I became emotionally invested myself. I started speaking to all these bookstore owners around the world and hearing their stories, their challenges, and spent a lot more time in bookstores themselves and, and, and started finding out how important they were not just for selling books, but be, for being the hub, the intellectual hub of main streets all around the country where, where like people can go and they can talk and, and, and discuss ideas and get a chance to express themselves where, where people are doing, you know, their first public venue of, of you know, music or poetry readings or whatever. I learned the importance of bookstores um, very, very quickly. And I started really passionately illustrating all these different bookstores. Um, I actually painted maybe about 150 all total. And when did that book come out? That was about two years ago. It was a New York Times bestseller. I collected stories from different people to add in the book, uh, stories that um, took place in bookstores that meant something in their lives, whether it's funny or something emotional. These are people who were moved and changed by a bookstore. And in the book, there's a lot of fun people like uh, Michael Palin and, and Robin Williams. Tom Wolfe is in the book, uh, Paul McCartney. These are all people who love bookstores and had a great story to share. And I had a lucky chance to sort of share them all in one big collection. Have many of those bookstores closed in the two years since the book came out? Some of them have closed. Luckily, some that close actually have reopened from the publicity of them closing and, and and just the passion of all these people who want to help out bookstores. So I felt like this has been a really uh, a productive thing. I know from my book, there's been some great stories of people who were helped out where investors were made aware of the plight of a certain bookstore and they helped out. In some cases, it was more indirect, such as there was a bookstore in Toronto that's not in my book, but they loved the book. And this woman explained that her husband was dying 
And one of his last wishes was that his bookstore be painted by me. Mm. So I, I did an illustration of his bookstore, and the story wound up in the Daily Mail in Canada. And that's like one of the big newspapers, if not the biggest newspaper there is. And from that, a lot of outpouring of love came in the form of doctors who were interested in this owner's uh, case and actually have helped him out. And he's actually doing well. He's actually doing fine now. He's been getting special attention as a result of the story that was in the newspaper. And I just had dinner with him a few nights ago. And it was very emotional. And it was just amazing how a little thing like, you know, doing a drawing or something can actually help out and, and make people want to act on it. What would you say are among your favorite independent bookstores? That's really hard to answer because there's so many great stores. Um, I have great memories of Strand Bookstore, where as a teenager I'd hide out in the back and stuff. That would be a date for a teenager, a cheap date. Geez, that's such a tough question. There's so many stores. I love book culture in New York City, and they've been so supportive to me, and I'm really grateful. This one bookstore that was on a little boat in a canal in London. And the story behind that is just amazing. And that is there was a homeless man who found a place to stay on a boat. And eventually he he, he made the boat his own. And years and years passed. He built it up. that He could make a business of his place of home. He turned it into a bookstore. Huh. And that was a great story. I spent a day with him on his boat, and it, it was it ended in a funny sort of Mexican standoff where he was waiting for me to buy some of the books <laughs> on the way out, which is the one downfall of, of my project. I, I have easily 1,500 books huh. in a very small New York City apartment, and that's because I've always felt guilty as I leave each store they kind of look at you that way, <laughs> like, aren't you going to buy something? That on top of your snowman collection, I can't imagine what your apartment looks like. Oh, it's a disaster. <laughs> it is. The snowman collection right now is actually in Pennsylvania on display. Okay. So I'm, I, I do like sharing that. I'm glad it's on display for people to see. And that's out at the, uh, well, that's in Strasburg, Pennsylvania. If everybody wants to go, it's going to be up until February 6th. And that's when it comes down. But I hope to bring it to New York City, too. And World's Greatest Bookstores is now in production as a TV show? Well, there's talk about it. It's in the works. There's a crew working on doing a pilot to hopefully put it onto one of the network channels. And um, it's really exciting because I think that will really help out bookstores as well and also give me exposure with my book. And that means more people will share it. And, and, and see all the stories I collected. You have another book coming out, the ultimate cartoon book of book cartoons. Right. After doing all these stories with bookstores, I thought, these people need a good laugh. <laughs> and they also wanted me to do a book that they could sell again. They, they, they wanted a book about them. You know, they, they love bookstore stories. And so I thought, since I know all these great cartoonists, what I did was I collected the world's greatest cartoonists, People like Raj Chaz and, and Bob Mankoff, and Michael Madlin, and, and so many other people who I'm lucky to also call my friend. And we put together a collection of the funniest bookstore and book cartoons. And I'm really excited about this book. It really is pretty good. When is it due out? It's going to come out in April by uh, Princeton Architectural Press, who I want to thank for seeing that there was a, a calling for this. They, 
they're really excited. They're actually having me do two more books about cartoons and insane people and stuff. So this could be a fun thing. So what else is coming down the pike for you? Well, I'm going to be teaching at NYU, and I'm looking forward to that. I'm going to be doing live drawing classes, which is sort of combining journalism with illustration, which is a trend that's going on now. Um, We see it everywhere where people have a short attention span, and they want visuals, and they want a quick message. And so what we see a lot of places in, in magazines like The New Yorker or The New York Times is um, reporting using drawing, live drawing. And this is something I've done for a couple of decades, uh, starting with the Super Bowl. With the Super Bowl? The the Super Bowl, I was going each year to either the game or I was going someplace where the the game was being televised live in a big club. And I would uh, draw all the activity and draw the game and give my commentary and crack wise. The last time I did this was at B.B. King's Club uh, sitting down next to Joe Montana. Huh. And he was throwing footballs in this club for charity. If you caught the ball, you donated $2,500 to his charity. And it was a fun thing. And free w- wings and free food. So there you go. You can't, can't go wrong. That. You can't do that so, Bob, thank you so much for coming in. Well, thanks so much. This has been fun. That's author, illustrator, and cartoonist Bob Eckstein. His book, The Illustrated History of the Snowman, is available now. His earlier book, Footnotes from the World's Greatest Bookstores, is a New York Times bestseller. For more information about Bob's work, visit his website, bobextein.com. And that's it for this week's Cityscape. I'm George Borarki. My thanks to producer Fiona Shea. And thank you so much for listening.